0: Amen. Thank you, Doug. Good morning, City Light. It is good to be back with you all. I had a uh, great trip to Paraguay a couple weeks ago now, and then a couple days after I got back, I did test positive for COVID, and so I got a nice little quarantine time after that. I have since finished that, and uh, I feel good, and I'm grateful to get to be back here with you all. Um, I did miss you while I was gone, but I'll be honest, the time when I was away in Paraguay was pretty incredible. Um, I'll tell you a little bit. While we were down there, we got to visit, I think, seven churches. Now, for decades in Paraguay, the Alliance Church, the Christian Missionary Alliance, is the denomination that our church is a part of. The Alliance Church in Paraguay was only two churches for decades. It started in 1965 when some missionaries from Argentina crossed the border and planted the first church. A second one started not long after that. It was just those two for decades, but in the last couple years, those two churches have turned into nine incredible. They are planting churches. Amazing stuff is happening. There are local pastors reaching out to neighborhoods where there is no local church at all. They're providing meals to people who are in quarantine. They're tutoring kids who can't go to school. They're helping teach um, indigenous people in the area how to build brick homes to replace their sort of makeshift cardboard shacks. Um, They're multiplying small groups in new neighborhoods and they're planting new churches. I can't wait to share more details and some pictures of all of that with you later. But today, we're here not to talk about my trip to the Southern Hemisphere. Um, We're here to talk about a little trip that Boaz took at the end of the book of Ruth, in the beginning of the fourth chapter. So let me catch you up. Last week, Doug walked us through chapter 3, uh, which recounts for us a private conversation between Ruth and Boaz. It was a private conversation. It happened under the cover of darkness at nighttime on the threshing floor near Boaz Field's outside of the city, and it was just the two of them. And in that private conversation, Ruth expressed to Boaz her need for a redeemer, and she asked him to be the guy. And so that's chapter 3. Chapter 4 comes just on the heels of that conversation. It's the next morning, and Boaz is going to take his answer to Ruth's private question, he's going to make his answer public for all to see and hear. And that sounds shady when I say it out loud, but it's not, All right, It was necessary in those days. And so no more private conversation. Boaz is going to have the next conversation in the light of day at the gate of the city, the entrance to the place where everybody has to pass through. There were going to be witnesses that saw and heard all that he did, we move from a private conversation to a public declaration in Ruth chapter 4, and we're going to see Boaz the Redeemer. We're going to see what a Redeemer looks like. I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, I'm really grateful for pictures like this. Pictures in Scripture that show us, they reveal to us what the Bible means when it says things like Redeemer. Redeemer. Because when I hear the word Redeemer, I, frankly, don't first go to Scripture. Like I think of things like the movie Dumb and Dumber. Okay, there's a scene in that movie where um, Lloyd and Harry have been traveling in a van that looks like a dog across Nebraska headed to Colorado, and for some reason, Harry gets out, Lloyd leaves with the van, and he comes back, and instead of having the big van that looks like a dog, he's on some sort of little moped minibike kind of thing, and Harry looks at him and says, uh, you know, Lloyd, just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber... You go and do something like this and totally redeem yourself, right? And in the movie, it's a hilarious scene to watch. He redeemed himself, you know? But it tells us something about what the world thinks redemption is like. The world tells us that to redeem ourselves, we, uh, we make right the things that we did wrong. We correct our bad decisions by making better ones. We overcome a hurdle so that we can continue to press on toward our goal. The world says redemption is a matter of personal achievement that I accomplish for myself by satisfying the standards of the people judging me. In the movie Dumb and Dumber, that makes for a really funny scene. But in reality, it sets an impossible standard for us, doesn't it? And so I'm, I'm really grateful for pictures in Scripture of what the Bible is talking about when it says redemption. When it talks about a Redeemer. And so that's what we get to see this morning. Boaz is going to show us a better redemption than the world shows us. He's going to show us, put on display what the Bible is talking about. Boaz the Redeemer shows us what Jesus the Redeemer is like. And so here are the three points that I'm going to make this morning. Uh, The Redeemer is eager to redeem at his own expense in front of witnesses who will share the story. That's what the Bible's talking about when it says a redeemer. He redeems uh, eagerly at his own expense in front of witnesses who will share the story. If you've got your Bible with you or an app, go ahead and find Ruth chapter 4. Doug started the story for us moments ago. I'm going to read it again. Watch for what the redeemer looks like. We're starting with a redeemer is eager to redeem. We'll pick up in chapter 3 verse 18. She, Naomi, replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Now, I think there are several indicators of Boaz's eagerness to redeem in this passage. I'll just highlight a few. First, Naomi says Boaz will not rest until the matter is sorted out. Until he gets this taken care of. He's going to make it happen today. It's like his highest priority. His to-do list for the day has one checkbox on it. He is eager to redeem and nothing else is going to take priority over that until it is accomplished. Boaz is eager to redeem, number one. Uh, A second way that this passage highlights Boaz's eagerness. When Boaz gets to the city gate, he starts gathering people. He's setting the stage for what he is about to do. He spots the closer redeemer and asks him to take a seat. Now, we'll talk more about that guy in a minute, but for now, it's enough to know Boaz stops him at the entrance to the city gate and says, hey, wait here with me for a minute. And so that guy stops and he sits down. And once he's sat down, Boaz gathers ten elders of the city. Hey, would you guys sit here Two, and they all sit down. Now, a side note when we read the scripture in the morning, what do we ask you all to do? Remain standing. Because for us, in our day, standing is a position of authority and decision, of reverence. In their day, it was the opposite. You stood to work, you stood to walk, but when you were making a decision, when you were thinking something through, you would sit. And so Boaz grabs the closer redeemer, the elders of the city. He has all of them sitting down outside the city gate. These are people who would function as official witnesses. Boaz is setting up for himself an official hearing in the city square. The city gate is the place everyone had to pass through. So there were a lot of people, a lot of witnesses. It's that place where agreements would be made and witnessed. It's the first place that Boaz went. Now he's gathered everyone he needs to make his intentions known and official. He's eager to redeem. Now this legal setting that he is setting up with the other party and the witnesses and the public square, this matters because in these days, redemption was a legal transaction. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, owned land in Bethlehem before Naomi and Elimelech left for Moab. So their family had property there. And when they left for Moab for 10 years, they they abandoned that land. But the people who remained in Bethlehem didn't just leave it alone. Someone claimed it and Cultivated it. And this is a common practice in those days. In fact, we see the same thing happen in the book of 2 Kings. Let me read you a couple verses. The Bible says So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, She went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. So this is the same situation. The woman leaves her land for seven years, not quite the ten years Naomi was gone, still a long time. And while she was gone, someone else had laid claim to her land and her home. So when she returned, she had to appeal to the king to get them back. Well, in the days of the judges, when Ruth was written, there was no king. And so the same thing had happened. She had left, abandoned her land. Somebody else had laid claim to it. And then the Redeemer's responsibility was to buy back that land, to provide a son who could inherit it and reestablish the family line in that place. Clearly, redemption was a lot of responsibility. And Boaz was setting the scene so that he could officially take that on. He was eager to redeem. Third way that Boaz shows us his eagerness is he just pushes for a decision. Right? Like, he tells the closer redeemer, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, let me know. He's pushing for action. Either you do it or I'll do it. But we cannot let these women flounder even another day. He's eager to redeem. Friends, Boaz the Redeemer points us to Jesus the Redeemer. Boaz is eager to redeem and Jesus was eager to redeem. We are not that unlike Ruth and Naomi. We're separated from the place where we are supposed to be. Let me me build that out. God created us to be with him. That's how the Bible begins in Genesis, God walking with his people in the garden. That's how the Bible ends in Revelation, God living with his people in the city around the garden. The Bible starts and ends that way. We were created to be with God, and yet everything in between the garden and the city is showing us that that's not the reality that we're in right now. Why Because our sin separates us from God. Like Naomi wandered away from the inheritance she had in God's place, abandoning it, our sin means we have wandered away from God and abandoned the life that he intended for us, the place that he gave us with him. Our sin separates us from God. Naomi and Ruth needed someone to redeem their situation And we need someone to redeem ours too. For Ruth and Naomi, that person was Boaz. For us, it's Jesus. And in short, on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sin so that we can enter God's place again. That's redemption. Look at what the Bible says about why Jesus did that for us. His heart in that. This is from Hebrews chapter 12. Looking to Jesus... The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus redeem his people? Joy. For the joy that was set before him. He knew that on the other side of the cross he would be reunited with the Father and all of his followers would get to do the same. Our Redeemer is eager to redeem. Boaz did not go reluctantly to the city gate and Jesus did not go reluctantly to the cross. Somebody says amen. Boaz the Redeemer points us to Jesus the Redeemer first in eagerness. Second, Boaz redeemed at his own expense, right? Redemption is costly. Let me show it to you in the Bible. We're going to go back to that closer redeemer dude that we kind of breezed past earlier. Boaz told him, either you redeem it or I will. And he responds. This is what the Bible says. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, I don't know about you, but at first it seems odd to me that this is even included in Scripture. It feels like an interruption to the story, doesn't it? Like Ruth and Boaz have formed this connection, and then this guy enters in a closer redeemer, and he prompts these questions like, oh man, is this no-name going to become the hero that Boaz is supposed to become? Is he going to interrupt this uh, blossoming connection between Ruth and Boaz? We thought this could be love. Is he going to unravel everything that we've hoped for so far Just because he's closer, what's going to happen here? And just as soon as he enters the story, he exits with the answer, "Eh, I can't do it, right? It's like anticlimactic. Wouldn't it have been easier just to leave that part out of the story? It may have been easier, but the Bible didn't do that. The Bible doesn't leave it out, and there's a reason for that. I think the reason is tucked away in the way he justifies his decision to pass on redeeming Ruth and Naomi. He says, I, I can't redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Somehow, redeeming Ruth and Naomi could impair his own inheritance. I think, friends, this shows us that redemption is costly. The redeemer would have had to buy back Naomi's land. That's an expense and probably a big one. And then he would have had to pay workers to plant and maintain and harvest the ground. That's another expense. And he would have had to take Ruth and Naomi under his care. That's two mouths to feed and bodies to clothe and people to care for, another expense. And he would have had to provide a son to one day inherit that land. That's another little mouth to feed and body to clothe. And if a girl would have come first, it could have been multiple little mouths to feed and bodies to clothe. More and more expense added on top. And after he had made all of that investment and raised up that son, guess what happens? That son inherits everything. He gives away everything he purchased for that son to inherit and carry on the family line in that place. In other words, the Redeemer makes a huge personal sacrifice on the front end and gives away everything that he purchased on the back end for the good of somebody else. A family line that, that really, in the end, isn't even his It is costly to redeem. And so the closer redeemer is afraid that all that investment might impair his own family's situation, and he passes. Ah, I can't do it. But not Boaz. The Bible tells us how Boaz responds. Again, from Ruth 4. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belongs to Kileon and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day quick just pastoral aside, it says he bought Ruth to be his wife. That sounds really bad to our ears, but she actually asked him to do that. She wanted him to do that. It would have been a blessing to her, not in like an acquiring her as property kind of way, but in a giving her provision and love that she had no other way to get unless he had done that. So it sounds bad to our ears, but actually in context this was a massive blessing. So don't uh, hear it wrongly. Okay, back to the story. Boaz redeemed at his own expense. Yes, he was eager to redeem, but that didn't mean that it was cheap and easy. No, it was high cost, high investment, and he did it anyway. He paid the price. He covered the bill. He put it all on his own tab. And friends, the Bible says Jesus did the same thing when he redeemed us. I'll show it to you in the book of Colossians. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you who were dead, God made alive together with him. That's redemption. People were dead and destitute and no way to provide for themselves or get what they need. God made alive. That's redemption. Goes on. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now that mirrors Boaz's redemption, does it not? Jesus redeems us, literally making dead people alive again. Ruth and Naomi, their lineage was dead. No way to continue the life that it once promised. Boaz redeemed them and gave new life to that lineage. Jesus took us who were dead in our sin and made us alive again. How? The Bible says he forgives us. And that forgiveness, uh, we get particular description of it in Colossians. It's not just a general forgiveness. He forgave our debt. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Our sin against God put us in a debt we could not pay. He, uh, he forgives us by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Jesus forgives us by canceling our debt and fulfilling the requirements of justice that stood against us because of our sin. When Jesus forgave us, he did it at great cost to himself. What was the price that he paid? Jesus forgave by nailing all that to the cross. That's what Colossians says. Jesus paid with his own life, with his own blood on the cross. Jesus stepped in and paid the death sentence that we should have paid because of our sin. Redemption is costly. And friends, this is such a radically different picture of redemption than what the world shows us, isn't it? It's it's totally different. Earlier, I said that the world tells us that we redeem ourselves by making right the things that we did wrong, by making better decisions and uh, correcting the bad ones that we made before by overcoming whatever hurdles stand in the way to pursuing our goals or continuing our paths, the world is going to tell us that we redeem ourselves. That somehow redemption is something that I can accomplish for myself if I can somehow satisfy the demands of the people who judge me. The Bible tells a radically different story. It says you who were dead God made alive. When you are dead, you can do nothing for yourself. You can achieve nothing for yourself. That lifeless inability to do anything is our reality when we face sin on our own. We cannot overcome it. And That's why Jesus is such an incredible redeemer. Because he didn't leave us on our own or expect us to overcome sin by ourselves. Instead, he put his own skin in the game. He paid the price we couldn't pay so that we can live with him again. That's redemption. Redemption is not simply making bad people good or good people better. Redemption is not simply a new way of thinking where we make better decisions for ourselves like it's the best self-help resource out there. Redemption is not a an achievement that you can make if you try hard enough. That is not what the Bible wants for you. That is not what God has done for you. Set an example and then leave you to follow it on your own. It's just not it. There is a better redemption. It is when God makes people who were dead in their sin alive with him, together With him through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. It's a better redemption. Somebody who's been redeemed by Jesus says, Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for not leaving me on my own to pay the price for my sin, but that you paid it for me. It's redemption. That's number two. The redeemer is eager to redeem at his own expense. And number three, he does it in front of witnesses who would share the story. All right? When Boaz bought the land from, uh, when he redeemed the land for Ruth and Naomi, he told everyone watching that they were witnesses to what has happened. In fact, in the scripture I read moments ago, Boaz actually, in his monologue, begins and ends with, you are witnesses. He wants people to know what they have just seen happen. And then they respond. Let's go back to the Bible, Ruth chapter 4. Friends, imagine the picture. At the city gate to a town in Israel stands an Israelite man who takes for himself a Moabite woman. This woman is from the land of Moab, a wicked enemy nation to God's people. And Boaz stands in the city gates with elders and witnesses watching on. And he says, I'm going to redeem this land and I'm going to take her as my wife. And after he's done it, they say, we see what you did. And here's what we hope. That that woman becomes among us like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah were the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. They stood in high esteem because from them came all of God's people. That's Rachel and Leah. And the elders of the city are looking at a Moabite woman saying, We hope she stands among those women in legacy and esteem. We want her story told like theirs. And then they go on and, and they recount Judah and Tamar and their son Perez. Now listen... That was another Leverite marriage where a woman who was destitute had a son provided. That whole situation was even weirder than Ruth and Boaz. But listen, in the end, they're saying Perez would not have been around if that marriage hadn't happened. There would have been a line cut off from the people of Israel that continued because Judah and Tamar bore Perez. Obe, uh, sorry, Boaz actually is in the line of Perez. So he wouldn't even been around if that marriage hasn't happened. And so these elders now are saying, hey, we want Ruth to stand in legacy and glory like Rachel and Leah, and we want the lineage that comes from her, the one that would have been cut off but now will continue. We want it to be like Perez, one that keeps going. Friends, these elders are celebrating with joy the decision that had just been made. And they're saying, we want this story to be told with the other great stories of God's people. We are witnesses. That points us to Jesus, the Redeemer, who also gathered witnesses. After Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave... He appeared to his disciples, to his followers. He walked with them, talked with them, ate with them, appeared with them for 40 days. And after 40 days had passed, he he rose from the grave, 40 days had passed, all kinds of people, over 500, saw him. The Bible tells us what happened. This is from the book of Acts. Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my what? Witnesses. The Redeemer didn't do it in secret. He did it for all to see. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. The very last thing Jesus said to his followers before he ascended into heaven is you are my witnesses. And your witness is going to start right here where I'm talking to you. And it's going to extend to the ends of the earth. Jesus did redemption in the sight of all to see. And then he sent his witnesses to tell the world what they have seen. And friends, they did it. If you know Jesus as your redeemer, it's because those witnesses told somebody else what they had seen and experienced. And those people believed and they told somebody what they had seen and experienced. And that happened over and over and over again until you heard it. And believed. And if you have seen Jesus' power in your life, if you have known his love for you even when you rebelled against him, if you know his spirit that indwells you as a believer, if you have life today in this world and hope for eternity in heaven with God, you have it because a witness passed it down. Amen? That's what Jesus is saying would happen. And friends, it is happening. And we get to be part of the story. And I may be just a little extra fired up about this this morning because I just got to see it in living color in Paraguay. I just went to the ends of the earth, it seemed, from here. And I got to see it happening. And so let me just tell you a couple quick stories. One, I met a pastor named Vicente. Uh, He uh, pastors a church in a poor neighborhood in Asuncion, the capital of Paraguay. Before he started there, the church had become so dilapidated that the students in the, the kids in the neighborhood, when they would walk past the church on their way home, they would cross the street so that they didn't have to walk close to the building because they thought it was haunted. And so. The the church had just, it was at a point where they almost sold the building because it was so run down and dead. Then Vicente comes on the scene and he feels a call to pastor, not just in that building, but in that neighborhood. And so for the first three months that he was a pastor there, he would, with his wife, put his kids to bed, and then he would get up and walk to the church building and pray there until he fell asleep. He he slept in the church because he he knew, man, this is not what God wants for this place. And so he'd pray over the building. He'd pray for the kids who walked past. He'd pray for the neighbors who didn't even know there was a church in their neighborhood. And he would fall asleep praying, oftentimes in tears, begging God to move, make a change. And three months in, he felt like God said, I'm going to do it but you're going to have to go out. And so he starts going and talking to the neighbors instead of praying in the church building. He's going out and talking to neighbors, and his wife has this idea. I'm going to start an after-school tutor program in the building. And it started with just their daughter, one kid. And by the end of the term there were 40 kids meeting for tutoring in that building. Literally, the very same kids who thought it was haunted and wouldn't walk on the same side of the street that the building was on are now entering that building so that they can get tutored on their schoolwork and learn about Jesus too. And the teachers in the school said there'd been such a a massive change in those students, they wondered if they could send more kids there. And so while the wife is doing that, he's out talking to neighbors, and they're saying, we didn't even know there was a church here. And they helped renovate to the building. Oh, it was the other building, actually, um, the blue one. They helped renovate this, so it doesn't look nearly as scary as it did when he started. This small church is witnessing to kids and neighbors, and, and the community is changing because of it. There are witnesses to what Jesus has done, praying for their neighborhood that they might know Jesus too. Okay, one more. There's another church down there, um, the other picture, uh, that's been around for decades. This one's been there for a while. They gather on Sundays and scatter throughout the week in life groups. Sounds like a rhythm that we would know. Um, There's one particular life group that doesn't meet in the neighborhood where the church is. They meet in a neighborhood across town. They do that because they realized there were several families from that neighborhood driving across town to go to church. And as they started talking, they said, there's no church at all in our neighborhood. Not any, zero. For any of our neighbors to hear about Jesus, they have to drive out of the neighborhood. And their hearts were broken. And so they thought, well, let's start a life group in our neighborhood and Maybe that'll become a church plant. And so that's what they're doing. They started a life group there. Now they're praying for a building. They're inviting their neighbors to life group. It's been growing. They're about ready to multiply. And they're praying that a church planter would come, help them start a church in that part of the city. They're being witnesses in their neighborhood where there was no witness to what Jesus has done. City like what Jesus said would happen is happening. His followers, who are witnesses to his redeeming power, are sharing that good news all over the world. And we get to be part of that action. And so, I'll just close with this. Friends, as we read Ruth chapter 4, we see Boaz the Redeemer. He's eager to redeem Ruth and Naomi. He's willing to do it at his own expense in front of people who will share the story. And as we read this, can we not leave it on the pages in the front end of our Bibles? But instead, will we let it inspire us? Let it point us to Jesus, our Redeemer, and our role in his story. Let it remind you that Jesus did not go reluctantly to the cross, but he did it eagerly for the joy that was set before him, for the joy of his followers living with him again. Jesus, who did not expect us to redeem ourselves by our own achievement, but did it at his own cost when he shed his blood on the cross. And he did it all before witnesses who have shared the truth with us so that we can share the truth with others. Friends, if you know Jesus as your Redeemer, keep telling the world what you've witnessed so that all will hear. Amen? Amen. All right. Will you pray with me? Awesome, God. I thank you for this story in Ruth, this account of what Boaz and Ruth did to put on display a foretaste of what Jesus did for us. Gotta pray today for anyone who does not know Jesus as their redeemer. Maybe you've thought you need to clean up your life, get your act together, and then Jesus could love you. Maybe you've thought, man, I don't know, Jesus, if you could ever forgive somebody like me. If, if you knew what I did, you'd know. Man, it's a, it's a struggle. Maybe you've just felt like, ah, I don't think Jesus would be interested in me. Maybe he redeems people with a really dark story, but mine's kind of boring. Maybe Jesus just doesn't even care about me. If you've never known Jesus as your Redeemer, man, this morning, would you let the Bible speak truth to you? That Jesus looked at all of us who were dead in our sins whether you were in the deepest depths of the darkness of the world, or you just had kind of a a basic run-of-the-mill life without any incredible rebellion, just life without Jesus. He took all of us who were dead in our sin and died on the cross so that we might be alive together with Him. He canceled the record of debt, no matter what your record was. If you've never known Jesus as your Redeemer, today, would you turn to Him? Admit you're a sinner. Jesus, I have sinned against you. I've wandered away, abandoned what you intended for me, life together with you. When you admit that, then you can believe in Jesus that he is the redeemer, that he did die on the cross, that his blood was shed in your place to satisfy the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands and then commit to follow him. If you can do that, Jesus is your redeemer now and forever. Friends, if you know Jesus like that, you've already walked with him, then maybe today, Be inspired again that you are a witness to the greatest story this world has ever known. The greatest redemption that we could ever experience. Friend, let it inspire you to tell the story. We are not witnesses meant to keep our mouths closed. We are witnesses meant to share. So let's share with the world that desperately needs to hear. Jesus, would you send us out? bring in a harvest of believers, a harvest of the redeemed, because people like us share your story. Jesus, for your glory and our good, we pray it all in your name.